0: Hello, this is Pablo Sabaleta. This is Troy Deeney.
1: This is Kevin Phillips.
0: This is Jürgen Club and you're listening to the big interview with Graham Hunter.
1: Thank you, Jürgen. I travel to all these interviews from Barcelona and our socios, our beloved members, keep us on the road. This independent podcast would not happen without them. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to become a socio, to become one of our members. And get an extra big interview every month, plus loads of bonus content. So, go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot forward slash Graham Hunter, and we'll bring you joy.
0: For Backpage, my name's Neil White, and this is the Big Inside View. First of all, you should be seeing this on your feed um, during the Christmas period. So, Happy Christmas to all our listeners, and a heartfelt thanks from me and Martin and Chris at Backpage and Graham for sticking with us throughout 2018, listening to all the shows that we've done. I hope you've enjoyed them and continue to do so in 2019. In this. The year of Take the Ball, Pass the Ball, a movie project that has consumed, I'm going to say, 82% of Graham Hunter's life. It's fitting that we do our end of year show on kind of an Oscars theme. We wanted to give you something similar to an end of year award show. So for the next half hour or so, Graham's going to run through some of his highlights from a year spent watching football, from Spain to Russia and all points in between, and interviewing some of the game's biggest names for this very podcast.
1: Do you know what really, really hacked me off, Neil, though, is like when this Oscar plan started and, and you and Martin and Tater started thinking about it in June. And I said to you, do you have the budget for this intro to be done by Tina Fey and Amy Poehler? I remember you saying yes. Now, you're, you're, this, your spiel has been good, I'll give you. But you're not Tina and you're not Amy. I'm not even Billy Crystal, Graham. No, nah, there's method in your madness, Billy Crystal. There's a little joke in there if you want to find it.
0: I'm in my best tuxedo, Graham. I'm going to presume, although we are in different places right now, that, that you also are uh, are done up properly. So the first category in the big interview Oscars, brought to you by Bet365, is the best stadium experience. So, Graeme, I mentioned in the intro that you've had a year uh, travelling all over Europe watching football. What was the best time that you had inside a stadium?
1: Um, because this has been a year of sadness, I'd love to be able to say that it was Um, pitodry, um on the last occasion that I shared uh, the glorious home of football with the mighty Neil Tatty Cooper. But unfortunately, although the night that followed uh, the last time I was at the Dandies with Neil um, was stupendous and stupid, the match which preceded, which preceded it was a terrible, dreadful nil-nil bore. So I can't really say that, although as years tick by, we're into our final um, glorious moments with Petaudry the home of football and therefore next time we do this awards my answer will probably be petaudry however you know the hackney cheapskate way of answering you would be to point out that when you got a really big game at the Bernabeu or at Camp nou or now at the Metropolitano which is one hell of a, an edifice it's and an a really good place to go and participate in a, in a great spectacle because The views are sensational, the noise is contained in the stadium. As Atleti begin to play better football, the Metropolitano is going to be a wonderful place to go. When the Champions League final is hosted there uh, next May, I think, or June, people are going to complain about how far outside the city it is and the transport links to get back. But the actual final itself, the actual experience will be glorious. I can hone it down, Neil, and I'm going to uh, vacillate or even oscillate between two things which way back um, a couple of weeks ago came together in the Europa League because the the two different stadium experiences I would answer you and our sponsors Bet365 about would be when the World Cup took me to Krasnodar, uh, we were filming for HBS some people will remember this from that those late night, often intense, sometimes gloomy podcasts that you and I did together from the World Cup. And Krasnodar turned out to be a really odd, idiosyncratic, extraordinarily hot city, particularly in summer. 45 degrees was what we were sweating through, running around, seeing a manager being sacked, refilming, green screen with Fernando Ayero, moaning about his tactics and games. But before all that started, we were aware that Spain had their last friendly, uh, before the World Cup group, beginning with Portugal, in Krasnodar's stadium. Now, pff, that seemed vaguely intriguing at that stage, until we went in, saw this literally remarkable, I, I think, groundbreaking stadium in terms of its look, its cost. Those who were listening in the summer will remember that uh, Sergei Gilitsky the, well, it says in his um, CV that he's a supermarket billionaire. I'm willing to take it on trust that He's, uh, he's earned his bucks by selling baked beans and Coca-Cola, but he's worth a couple of billion. Um, his dream was to make uh, the nearest club to his home city, which was Sochi, Krasnodar, glorious, and he went to mine the same quarry near Rome that the Colosseum was originally constructed from, and therefore the marble that houses the bloody thing is already something of a, you know, it's, it's a, the marble is a marvel and hugely expensive architecturally. The the construction crew were putting this together when he gave them lads. You know, I want to go to Rome quarry and bring back marble for the stadium. They must have kept straight faces like totally Omerta, Easter Island faces in the meeting. And they must have gone out and just danced a jig of joy for all the money they were going to earn out of this. I'd love to be in a flying ball in that meeting. Going home to your missus as the architect or the head of construction. And you'll never guess what we're doing. (laughs) And then inside he goes equally crazy. And because we sort of doorstepped him as he wandered around, looking at his stadium with all his massed ranks of gun-toting bodyguards. We saw him, we were filming inside the stadium, there was nobody else there. I said, all right, dude, comrade, can we have an interview? And he said, no interview, but come, I'll give you a tour of the stadium. And in terms of of facility, I mean, I've been in the dressing room in the Camp Nou, the dressing room in Old Trafford... Uh, Wembley I could go on I lose count Not the Bernabeu But certainly in the Calderon These facilities were um, It was like being in Star Trek If you looked at the Recuperation facilities If you looked at the uh, Medical facilities the, the the way that the food Was dispensed Within the the building For the staff The, the gyms the, the types of changing room The numbers of different Changing rooms The referees facilities <laughs> Utterly unbelievable the way in which the giant screens kind of it's not surround sound so much as surround vision and sound, and it 's just a marvel of a stadium, so seeing that and and watching the the guy who dreamed of of building this race around, ordering every to open everything up and to to kind of without boasting certainly to to sort of bang his own chest and say look this this was my dream, and you're walking around it now." And his little funny joke that I told you about. I said, come on, come on, I'll show you the worst seat in the house. And so we climb up all these stairs in the stand and we go to the worst seat in the house. And it's extraordinary. It's absolutely gorgeous. You got, you're got you still quite near the pitch. There's a full panorama. The seats are comfortable. Bloody hell. Sergei Galitsky, whether he's one of the world's good guys or not, I couldn't tell you. But he's a force of nature. And he showed us his stadium. However, it's better to have full contact than the, than sort of spar. And those who realise that the match I'm referring to a couple of weeks ago was Sevilla Krasnodar in the Europa League will appreciate that the, the choice I'm making, and not for the first time in our conversations, is about the Nutvion, um also known as the Ramon Sanchez Pithuan where Sevilla's house is. And I'm choosing it not simply because You know, I've lived through some really extraordinary times in that stadium, in that city. It's the second Spanish city where I saw football back in 1982, albeit that that was at the Benito Villa Marine. Um, But commentating live at La Liga matches and it falling into our lap that we do one week, Sevilla being ripped to shreds by Getafe, the fans ripping their players to shreds and booing them and calling for Pablo Machin to be sacked. And then a really brief period of time later, um, on the 26th of September, we pitch up and it's a midweek game. The stadium is bursting to the seams, 41,000 people there. It's still rip-roaringly hot. Lopetegui, who's sacking, I was a first-hand witness to in Krasnodar, is still the real Madrid manager. They come down there having had a brilliant record against Los Rojiblancos in the Nervion in the previous ten years. But they've suffered there every now and again there's been a tip over and you're there thinking, well look, if Madrid are back on form, the Sevilla I saw against Getafe, I've got it you know, got it hot and strong coming to them. If Madrid are a little bit dopey and Sevilla are on their proper form, you never know. What we had no clue about was that within 21 minutes, Andres Silva would have put counter-attacking, aggressive Sevilla two 0 up. 39 minutes, three 0 up. That Madrid were were looking bewildered and scared and slow and sloppy. But the the question was aimed at the stadium rather than the match. And when the nervion, when the biribiri, which is their um, ultra fans named after a, a mad obscure. African player who I think tied his boots on a couple of times for Sevilla when they're in full throaty chorus and when the sporting pride of that part of the city is unleashed it's a genuinely extraordinary vision and oral experience and the, and the the anthem the hymno uh, Sevilla 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 with the Andalus rhythmic clapping it makes it a night that bristles the, the hair on the back of your neck it's a life changing experience I am imag- if I could take somebody of past the age of maturity, past the age of eighteen, to that type of experience, never with them never having seen uh, football before, it would it would be the single best way to make somebody instantly fall head over heels in love with the whole experience, even having known nothing about our beloved sport in the first place. Literally amazing. My choice is Sevilla three, Real Madrid 0, 26th of September, 2018, in the Nervion, with those mental Rocky Blanco fans singing such that if there was a man on the moon, he'd have heard. Our
0: next category is Best Picture. So first, that's Best Football Photo from 2018. And Graeme, you and I have been pouring over some absolutely beautiful shots.
1: Have you settled on a winner? Yeah, well, uh, what I've settled on is a little bit of confusion because if this is an oral medium, how are people going to understand the picture we're talking about? Well, we're going to put the winner,
0: why don't we even put the the shortlist, the nominated pictures, up on the blog at grahamhunter.tv and we certainly will um, put the winner out on Twitter as well. And accept counter-arguments? And we'll we'll open the debate up. And also, I know that you have the skills, as we're all about to learn, listeners, to bring still images to life using voice.
1: By the time that um, Argentina had kind of managed their way pretty in a pretty slippery fashion through the group and played probably their first really good game of the tournament against France and led 2-1, I think we were not doing a drum roll and saying step forward, Kylian Mbappe, but it was as a secondary issue to see who would go through a special team like France with talent everywhere and with momentum, them having been finalists in the Euro two years before, and this crazy mixture of fallibility and confusion and bog-standard players and a champagne player that is Argentina, that is Messi, and they're playing well, and Pavard scores this extraordinary equaliser and then you think right, great, game on we're an hour into this match and Mbappe takes over he scores twice and the photo we're looking at comes with uh, Franco Armani a keeper who I haven't followed know nothing about and there's no point in saying otherwise doing the thing that I I really like when when you see somebody who um, is beaten in football it doesn't have to be a keeper I think it was it's a version of what we saw Sammy Kafur doing in 1999 in the Camp now, where he lay on the pitch and looked at the grass accusingly and beat the grass with his fist with his closed fist up and down again like a hammer on an anvil bang, bang 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 and he got mocked for it it was a disgraceful disgraceful thing because he became iconic and because they'd failed at the back you know, that, that outpouring of fury and anger, face down or nearly face down, picking himself up at his knees. Well, Argentina's keeper has got his full face and his nose buried in the turf. It's as if he's completely unconscious, not stunned, but as if he's been knocked cold. Because normally, only a body that has lost consciousness lies on the turf like this. Legs akimbo, hands, he's not conscious of where he's put his hands, and his full face... And all of us who love football have played on grass, and the smell of grass and the smell of mud is something that's intoxicating and it takes you back to your games, your triumphs, your defeats, having fun also. Well, this guy isn't having fun, but that's where the eye goes, I think, if if you're looking for depth in a photo, in this photo. What's majestic, I think, about D'Angelo Barksdale in this picture? He's got a magical number on his shirt, 10, And, and irrespective of who you are, What your preferences are. 10 in football is a magical number. It's supposed to mean magic. And Mbappe has just taken off in a counter-attack, run the length of the pitch, twisted and turned and left Argentinians flailing and failing. And he's tucked the ball away. And they're 3-2 up and they're going to go 4-2 up. And and Mbappe's face is, I, I don't know quite what to say, but it's a mixture of serene and knowing. It's not expressionless, but there's neither an outpouring of joy or we call it rabia in Spain, um, that sort of explosive adrenaline fury. There's just this, like a condor. His muscular arms, lean but muscular arms, are, are fully outstretched. And it looks like a giant bird about to take to the wing. And I also really love the fact that, and I'm doing it now, so if this is shit and you want to go and watch Coronation Street, then we're not friends. But looking at this picture has inspired me. I'm looking at my own hands, and Mbappe's fingers are splayed. Not only is he symmetrically beautiful, he's also a beautiful athlete. You know, he's a beautiful man. He's at that gorgeous age where you've reached maturity, but things are still new to you. And if you were to lean him over and you were trying to do a snow angel, maybe it's snowing where some of you are uh, now that we're in the, the festive period. If you leaned him back, he'd make the perfect snow angel with that pose. But it's in the eyes and the mouth that I think that the impact goes. It's like somebody saying, World, I I knew I could do this, but you didn't. And it's a flipping gorgeous photo, emblematic of a guy who scored four times in that World Cup and and who I think, Leo Messi aside, has been my most exciting, my most cherished uh, footballer this year. The Ballon d'Or, which now seems a distant memory, Was it, I don't know, a month ago or nearly? The Ballon d'Or was a travesty in that Luca Modric, as a footballer, if you could accumulate a career, is a merited Ballon d'Or winner. On the basis that it's supposed to be for this calendar year, he doesn't deserve it. and not even close. And if the Ballon d'Or was properly constituted, then Leo Messi, not for the greatness of his career, but for the greatness of this year, Leo Messi should have won it by a landslide that swept everybody else away. But if, and I stress if, because of the way that the criteria are written to those who vote, if winning the biggest trophies is now such a central part, which you must remember limits the field in any given year, it's always going to be somebody who's won the Champions League or the World Cup or the Euros, and that's too restrictive for the Ballon d'Or. But listeners, socios, friends, if there was somebody to challenge Leo Messi... It it wasn't Luca Modric and it wasn't Antoine Griezmann. It was Kylian Mbappe because he has been extraordinary all year. It's now, um, I don't know which day you're listening to this on, but it's now approximately a week since he turned 20. (laughs) And um, this photo that Neil um, has helped me select is a thing of absolute gorgeous all-time beauty. Not the star photo, star football photo of this year. But one of those, if Mbappe goes on to achieve what I expect him to achieve, given his athleticism, talents, the fact that he's got his head screwed on right. It's it's not quite Muhammad Ali leaning over Sonny Liston. But it's in that category. That's how good this photo is. That's how good this kid is. That's how beautifully it's composed. And that's the quality of the moment that it captures. So go find it. Um, vote on it. Disagree if you fancy but this is the one that I'll keep in my heart forever.
0: Thanks, Graham. We're going to put those pictures up, certainly this one, on GrahamHunter.tv, the blog, and also on Graham's Twitter feed and the podcast Twitter feed. Before we move on to the next award, I want to credit the picture. So this fantastic work is that of Michael Reagan, a Getty photographer. So we'll mention that, of course, when we display the picture. And hopefully you guys can check it out and enjoy it as much as Graeme and I did. OK, it's time for our next category and it's best director
1: of oh, football. Graham, who do you think's performed the best in the market this year? But, um, this is one for the older folks because uh, I, uh, I know many people um, who would like to think that I'm either Bill or Ben, one of the flowerpot men, and that I can be controlled by strings. And therefore, I know from um, a little bit of background work that there's, there's a, a general desire for me to say Zork. Michael Zorc at Borussia Dortmund, because um, Axel Witzel's worked quite well and Asherath, the fullback from Real Madrid, is working quite well and looking as if Real Madrid have done a smashing thing in letting him go like they did Danny Carvajal to Leverkusen to Bundesliga Football where he's going to mature and become more robust and get game time and confidence and go back to Madrid flying and ready just like Carvajal did and it's evidently clear that one of the great odd unpolished diamond stories of the European season thus far has to be poor Paco Alcázar who in qualifying for I don't know was it pff, I, sh- I should know shouldn't I I think it was um, the Brazil World Cup rather than the Euro 16 it was Spain's group leading scorer and at Valencia looked vital and quick and Raúl-esque in terms of what type of quality of possession he needed in terms of scoring goals. And that on a poor old kid, lovely guy, though he is, looked completely lost, um, adopted a little bit by Messi, who wanted to see him through his troubles because Messi thought he was a wonderful guy in training, not just because of his attitude or his application, but because he's just a he's just a fine human being, poor old Paco. He goes to Dortmund and uh, I think, it, what's the story, Neil, that I think he started negative three games and scored 62 goals or something of that nature. His goal-per-minute ratio is utterly astonishing, but he's also the whole transfer operation um, conducted by Zorc, who was a a successful player at Dortmund, midfielder. Um, If I'm not wrong, he played some minutes in their European Cup final and Champions League final winning over Juve. And he's been for many years the guy who conducts the ins and outs. And something that I think I can... I can suggest is that he's been very, very shrewd in handling the issue of Christian Pulisic and what should happen and fighting off Bayern Munich, which is a little bit the the part of the iceberg that's under the surface at the moment compared to bringing in Wolf and Itz and and Diallo. And the performance of Borussia Dortmund is is thrilling everybody who wants the axis of power in all the major leagues broken, in that Dortmund are, are putting in a record performance so far, He's got, um, or there is a team now where is looking renewed, where Royce has been fit for more than four consecutive weeks and hasn't been called up on any kind of motoring charges. And therefore, Old Zorky needs to be in there. But I think there are proper competitors in that Joaquin Caparrós is the director of football at Sevilla. He took over um, temporarily at the end of last season, at a point when Sevilla were in a terrible mess, and was... Uh, tempted to to stay on and to manage, rejected that temptation and handled a season whereby there needed to be an enormous amount of work done and they have done, I think, uh, pretty exceptionally in that they are now either equal top or around the top consistently of uh, La Liga. Uh, They're through in Europe, they've played an enormous amount of games in Europe, they are ...scoring freely... ...their transfers that they brought in... ...particularly uh, Vatlet in goals... ...has suddenly gone from being... ...a player who I would argue was... Um, ...under uh, known... ...under um, fancied... ...in that he is playing at a level... ...whereby instead of going from FC Basel... ...to Sevilla... ...there's no question that there are leading... like ...as in potential league winning clubs... ...all around Europe... ...who, who could be doing with him... ...Sergio Gomez... I I didn't think a whole hell of a lot of at Celta Vigo has upped his level, but the really standout pieces of work would be the goalkeeper and Andre Silva from AC Milan. Portuguese striker has fit absolutely brilliant with Fissin Van Nieder. He is looking confident and constructive and one of his associative centre forwards. All in all, if you look at the moderate impact of Quincy Promise, who has been deployed at right wing back and looked thoroughly good at that in that role Vidal they've still got it, it, Max Gonalons is the one that the current coach uh, Pablo Machin thinks is going to make the difference he's been injured for the majority of the first half of the season but Pablo Machin is absolutely thrilled with him they moved pretty serious players out including Nzonzi and Joaquin Correa who I was very unhappy to see go Longley who's if not starring at um, Football Club Barcelona is looking like an important addition to them. So for all that business to be done, and for Sevilla to be uh, through in Europe, and f- really for only the second time since the war, threatening to win the title in Spain, they are patently contenders. One more contender, because there are four in all uh, for me. And I'm going to ask Neil, I'm going to ask you and the readers to to filter back what they choose. Um, because it's, it's Because it's so early in the season, there can't be a definitive winner of this competition. But my club words are at Liverpool, if you look at the business in taking Alisson, particularly with the, the way in which the Mignolet and Carrius debate was hanging over the club. Alisson, although, what is it now, ten days, two weeks ago nearly, um, he was slightly fortunate that his um, error against United uh, didn't cost them more. He has been a standout footballer and a rock that has changed the way that Liverpool defend. And has augmented the ability for players around Van Dijk to pass the ball out of defence. And Alisson's addition, not just simply to taking the cross ball, shot stopping, the fact that he is a decent footballer, has I think has transformed Liverpool. I I wholeheartedly believe that they're about to get even more out of both Nabi Keita and Fabinho. And I think that Edward's team, including Barry Hunter, who I know is a listener to the show, and others who I don't want to name because they sometimes want to do their work a little bit undercover. I mean, Devo I, I I wondered whether there was a genuinely top-quality footballer in there, yet yeah, he's won them the Derby. Overall, it's my belief that Liverpool's work, net, particularly given who they lost, um, makes them contenders for this half-season award. And... Frankly the other one has to be Juventus, I think that it's um, an extremely hard job to keep the same coach, um, to lose a general manager, which they did in Beppe Moroto, to do no big club in Europe did more in and out business, whether it be purchases, loans, sales than Juventus. I would estimate that they did well over 50 deals um, in and out and that's an extraordinarily hard thing to manage. But so is prizing back Bonici from Milan, who's picked up more or less as if he'd never gone away, more or less settled his grudge with the fans, or theirs with him would be a better way to express it. Getting Ronaldo in the door at a point where everybody knew he had for some time wanted to leave Madrid, but was unclear about the right destination. He's there, comfortable, happy, playing well, and is fitted with the rest of the squad. Um, there's more to come from Emery Chan. It's my opinion that Juventus have carefully strengthened in areas where they particularly needed it. And one of the ones that's gone under the radar is buying João Concello, the, the full-back, who, in my opinion, is already exceptional and has the potential to be massively more influential. I think he's an extremely high quality right back right wing back right midfielder and therefore overall they fit in that category that you people will people who are better educated than me about european football who listen to this will make cases for other teams but in my humble opinion along with dortmund if you look at sevilla's pound for pound performance who they sold what they spent what time they had available to get people in who they who they you know failed to get sevilla failed to get Porto and they failed to get Mariano and yet they got Andre Silva and things are ticking on really, really well there. They're in the midst of earning a lot of money halfway through the season they've earned over 10 million euros already by getting through the uh, Europa League um, stages. Uh, And therefore, between Dortmund, Juve, Liverpool and Sevilla, they might sound like obvious candidates, but to me they equally represent the shrewdness of forward planning good contacts and an ability by the football director department, the football development department to to tessellate, to to fit beautifully with the needs of the coach and the squad. I think they're exemplary, Neil.
0: Fantastic. Let's have one more before we take a break. And we'll go with goal of 2018, your very own Puskas Award, sir.
1: Little Ferguson, Fergie 2, we call him at Aberdeen. There's a couple of candidates there including the League Cup semi-final at Hamden. Lovely little header. And I think that, if I'm honest, I see goals from Leo Messi all the time, which tempt me into saying that's unparalleled. Again, a couple of weeks ago, there was one that, that people may not even have noticed. Well, there was Look, there was a couple this season um, from Leo Messi. I, I I always contended that the best free kick I'd seen from Messi was a super, Spanish Super Cup defeat at Madrid, where... I'm pretty sure that they won three two at the Camp now in the first leg, but then uh, lost two one going on six one at the Bernabéu. And Messi scored a free kick at two 0 down with Adriano sent off from about seventy meters, which seemed to have the the rocket power that Ronaldo um, produces at his absolute very best, rather than Messi's beautiful trajectory and timing and catching the keeper just a pace. Off, which is n- not a fluke the way that he consistently does it. But there was a there was a free kick at um, Espanyol. Whoa, God, the difference a month makes. Let's say just approaching a month ago in the Catalan Derby, first of his two free kicks in that day, which probably equaled that, which pr- probably, given that it was a win, given it was the Catalan Derby, given that it came, well, there's your, there's your date, it came a couple of days after the Ballon d'Or award, and therefore they came close. But there was a goal created... A couple of weeks later at Levante Where it goes the length of the pitch I think from Barcelona There's a breakdown They press, they win it back Messi drags the ball to the left of the penalty area There are three men on him And he already knows he's going to clip it back up In a gap between the three of them For Luis Suarez to to come on to and volley And I name all these because they're so picturesque They're so clever They're so beautiful and their continuing testimony to the, the endless creativity and, and vision and imagination that Leo Messi is imbued with it in a way that so few players are. And I think that while the, the actual goal I'm going to name next might not in itself technically be up there with um, the extraordinary Pavard hit at the World Cup, which I think was against Argentina, wasn't it? In fact, it was, wasn't it, In the in the World Cup 16s. There's a moment when um, Andres Iniesta, who's man of the match in the Spanish Cup final, which is his farewell to the big time with Football Club Barcelona, plays a 1 2, wins the ball, in, or takes the ball in midfield, plays a 1 2 with Leo Messi, does a little shimmy dummy and sends the Sevilla keeper slightly to his right so that he can dance round and, and put the ball in at the near post. And it was balance and timing. and... Gorgeous and on this, you know, best of or mentioned in dispatches list because to finish a great career like his with a domestic double in a season where he'd walked off the pitch in the Olympic Stadium in Rome practically in tears, knowing that even though they were through, and I think he through when he walked off, I think and. I think he walked off knowing that they were going to go out to, to, to almost match Xavi, who finished on a treble at a time when Barcelona were physically and in football terms in a bit of trouble. And to rip Sevilla to utter shreds in that cup final and, and top it with that goal. All these things put it on the list. I'd love to say that there was a dandy's goal that, that topped it, but I thought there was a, just an extraordinary injustice done when the, when the big guns... I I don't know who it was. Was it the best or was it um, the Ballon d'Or? I think it's the best. Is it awarded Salah? But I don't think they put Bale... In fact, I'm sure they didn't put Gareth Bale's Champions League final goal in Kiev on the shortlist. Number one, it was an act of extraordinary uh, timing between two really gifted footballers in that Marcella looks for Bale and and puts it up to Bale as if it was an ordinary... um, so a balmy March Wednesday morning in training at Valdebebas with nothing on it, whether the cross or the volley come off. And Marcelo, for all his uh, idiosyncrasies and ex-interests is in terms of his body shape, which all you need to do, because I ain't digging him out in that he is what he is what he is. But if you look at the player shape in his first two, three years and that of now, he's a fella who's put a premium on his own ability Rather than his athleticism, or or what appears to me is his diet, yet he yet because he is such a brilliant footballer, he's re- remained at the absolute top of football and won three straight Champions League. And he sees bail and, and again, I'm pretty sure it's at one-one, and therefore, although Salah's off and Liverpool have had to really climb Everest to get back in the game, they are in the game, and and Marcelo's chip is aimed. For Bill to do something extraordinary in the middle of the air with a whether you want to call it a, a bicycle kick, or I think they call it a chilena here, or whether you fully classify it as an overhead kick. Bill's chutzpah and confidence. And I think after the match, he talked a little bit about taking out anger in that it was the second consecutive Champions League final that he hadn't started. And maybe his form leading up to Cardiff, albeit that it's his hometown didn't justify him coming on and all he got was a testimonial there because of the uh, three Champions League finals that he's won so far, or is it four? That was that was the only one where he didn't play a huge role. And and the connection and, and the goal to effectively break Liverpool and you and I sat with James Milner several weeks ago with him pretty much admitting that that was the moment when the game was over, even at 2-1. That... To my mind, in a Champions League final, given the situation, somebody coming off the bench, Gareth Bale seems to me, Neil, to carry, I don't know, a a, a a coldness about his appraisal or an or There's something, I mean, can you put it in better words than me, that there's not, there's not a massive amount of love for him. Do you, do you not feel that he gets looked at or talked about with a little bit of distance and lack of warmth compared to if it was another player doing what he does? Do you know what I mean?
0: That's the right formula to put it into. What, what if that had been Cristiano with that overhead kick to, to, win, to win the Champions League? There
1: you go, there you go. It, it, it goes in the hallowed halls. People appreciate it for the art that it is, the, the incredible physical, geometrical art that he's produced, the, the, the temperament, the timing, the importance, the fact that it's a British player making history and getting himself closer to the all-time Champions League winners list. And I can't understand the lack of appreciation for it. But f- from, from my way of understanding football, that by some considerable distance was the goal of uh, 2018. Mine too. And let's take a break
0: there. Join us. We'll be right back with more of Graham's Awards for 2018.
1: Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com When you make decisions
0: for your company, you look for the no-brainers. is what we're calling Best Adapted Screenplay, which is Graham's pick of his favourite football writing, his favourite piece of football writing this year. So we opened the parameter for him here. He could choose a long read online. He could go with a piece of newspaper journalism or even a book about football. Graham, where have you landed?
1: Yeah, you, you cheated on this because you know what I think. Um, I'm going to be clear-cut about this for once, and I'm going to choose. We live in the time of Leo Messi, who I think, in my humble opinion, has gone on to establish that he's the greatest, most exciting, most consistently brilliant footballer of all time. In my view, the arguments about Pelé and Maradona don't stack up. It's Messi. And I'm beginning to believe that we live in the time of a Leo Messi of sports writing. It's early, he's relatively new, but Jonathan Leo of The Independent, who's their chief sports writer, is as outstanding a communicator, as outstanding a chief sports writer, as I think I've ever encountered. And I grew up reading Catherine Whitehorn, McAvaney and Ken Jones... And even Clive James on on TV, which was pretty seminal stuff for me in terms of introducing wit and and wonder and sometimes nonsense into your writing. Jonathan is relentlessly exceptional. He will write as well about um, Simone Biles, for example, the epoch defying American gymnast who's had to suffer uh, racism, who won her most recent world championship. Despite um suffering from kidney stones at the time, he'll write brilliantly about chess, darts, golf. Although I think he has favourites and um his bit on Alistair Cook's last innings was absolutely magical, the story being that Cook might not necessarily be the most exciting batsman England have ever had, but he did on his very last innings, in his very last test score 147 to become only the fifth batsman to score a century in his first and last test match and he's also now as we speak the fifth highest run scorer ever in the history of the game and just let me if you'll indulge me Neil, Jonathan wrote about Cook, when he's feeling good though when all the gears are greased and the levers are in alignment he'll drive and this is what he does now, a beautiful off drive, an entirely wanton off drive, rakishly struck on the up and just tantalising the fielder enough to draw the futile dive. Four runs. The crowd coos, more an exhalation than an exultation. For seasoned Cook observers, it's the shot that tells you that everything is going to be okay. Cook, for his part, seems utterly oblivious. One day, neurologists of the future will dissect Cook's brain in search of the secret to his legendary powers of concentration. Who knows what they'll find? Perhaps that the entire structure is reinforced with the iron bars or that there's not actually a brain in there at all, just a respiring, gently weathered batting glove. For all the self-doubt, fatigue and ennui he's endured, away from the cruise, at it, he's attained zen. Before I get to my point, because I often take a long time to come to my point, the award-winning piece, Neil, you and I agree with and listeners can say whether they do or they don't or they've got other favourites, but recently, in, in the warm down to this festive period, what happened finally was that there was a widespread acknowledgement on two counts. One, the overt, nasty, shouted racism has regained an unacceptable purchase on football in general, but the spotlight went on that type of racism. In England particularly, Scotland can't escape. But a second realisation was that... Racism can't be defined simply as people shouting abuse um, at people of a different colour or religion or whatever you want to call it. And Jonathan wrote this and he wrote it about Raheem Sterling. He wrote, what Sterling has done so skillfully and with such devastating wisdom and insight is to take these two forms of discrimination, the violent public act and the insidious unacknowledged bias and bind them irrevocably together. And, of course, there's a wider context to be considered here. The role of technology and social media in allowing the hateful to congregate more easily. The role of our political class in replenishing the well of white supremacy in order to win elections. The role of toxic masculinity in encouraging the transgression of social norms in the name of absolutely legendary banter. But Sterling wasn't wrong to single out the media. As gatekeepers, informants, opinion formers we've done a pretty shoddy job. And the parenthesis there means I include myself and accept that. Back to Jonathan. There'll always be racism. There'll always be corruption and spite in men's hearts. We're not born tolerant in the same way we're not born prejudiced. But where we've categorically failed is in policing the culture of football, pushing back on the micro prejudices that contribute to a broader feeling of alienation, educating ourselves on the nature of racism as experienced a daily basis, rebooting our industry to make it remotely reflective of the public we serve. And the reason that Jonathan is so massively far ahead of everybody is not just his articulacy or his wit, the fact that he's extraordinarily educated and erudite. He's brave, he's fresh, he makes you rethink, he makes you readdress subjects, he'll do the surprising, he has an equally adept touch. I notice the, the sports which he prefers, Neil. I notice the subjects on which he's best. And I admit that you and I agree on where he's best. But he consistently startles me, consistently gives me food for thought. In an era where, because of the internet, because of televisual coverage of sport, um, because of piracy in, in rights... We all kind of see, we can all see everything. And a lot of us, therefore, think we know everything. But this guy takes away that rug from under our feet and said, I, says consistently says, I have been here. This is the person you're looking at. This is the level of their achievement. These are their faults. This is why they've won or failed or earned our respect. And that's different from constant sludge tsunami of i've seen that i think i know it and where it comes you and i agree to its epitome is in live reporting and it's the thing that i miss most in my life right now writing something live at an event because the set piece will often give you clarity on an issue or it might give you revelation and it gives the subject the opportunity to speak but when you're live it's on you to transmit what you've been given the privilege of going to. And this is this is Jonathan writing about the England game against Sweden. Just when the game was stagnating to the point where it felt that it might have to be delivered by Caesarean section, along came Harry Maguire. Or more specifically, along came Harry Maguire's head. Maguire's head really has an identity and a carriage all of its own. Like a three wood or one of Jupiter's moons, or an Elgin marble, or something similarly substantial and unyielding. It really is a large hadron collider of a head, a head for which hair is really just a sort of disguise, protecting the general public from the full, terrifying scale of that granite cranium. Rumours that the Earth has actually been revolving around Maguire's head this whole time remain, according to the majority of astronomical consensus, purely conjecture. Just in front of the goal line, you could see Delly Alley cowering in terror, not in fear that he would get in the way of the header and prevent a goal, but that the ball would hit him and he would be swept into the net with the power of a neutron blast. But he was all right, and so were England. On the touchline, Gareth Southgate allowed himself a triumphant raise of the fists before returning to the injured swan he was trying to nurse back to full health on the bench. There are... For my taste, elements of Spike Milligan, Croucho Marx, P.G. Woodhouse, best I've read, McElvaney, in his prime, and and things I've always aspired to be able to say and do. Best adapted screenplay uh, goes to Jonathan Liu, the most deserving Oscar I've ever handed out.
0: Jonathan's the best and I like it when everybody knows when somebody's the best at anything. The next envelope and our second last is for lifetime achievement.
1: Look, I don't know how it it can't go to Andres Iniesta because it doesn't say anything about retirement and his lifetime's achievement has been an adult life spent at football club Barcelona, arriving in circumstances which were beyond bizarre, picked to support his older And more fancied friend at a time when the youth system at Barcelona didn't take in kids that age. Iniesta was the one who came and suffered and cried a Julie London river. And who attracted the attention of Pep Guardiola and Perra Guardiola, his brother. And Xavi Hernandez. And then confused the life out of Frank Reichard. Who didn't know how to use him. Who was adopted when he first came into the... First team training situation by Luis Enrique Who would then take Andres Iniesta to his Second treble Life seems to me to have DNA ribbons going round and round And round the people in Andres Iniesta's World he was The guy who used a World Cup final to celebrate the Life and loss of His friend who was captain Of in inverted commas the enemy Club Danny Harkey The guy who still talks about um, how injuries and loss of confidence and death of a friend and events in the world cast him into a huge depression from which he emerged. He's the guy who elite footballers who should regard themselves as the best bow down on their knees and salute him. He's the guy who does what... Great footballers say is the most difficult thing, which is to make difficult things simple. And although it looked like the peak in his career had come and gone with the trebles or being voted player of the tournament when winning 2012 or scoring the winning goal in the World Cup final, ended his Barcelona life by saying, I can't play for another European club because I can never, will never face Football Club Barcelona. A guy who left Spain still being applauded in every stadium around the country, irrespective of whether they hated his club or or didn't, and went to Japan and found a new life and scored scored several of the greatest goals of his entire career. But uh, he's a guy who's I have to mention, has been kind to me, helped me on a number of occasions, um, treated me with respect, but furthered projects that you and Martin and Chris have been involved in, whether it be the books or subsequently... um, the film that we made, and as such, if we're talking about Lifetime Achievement, the guy I choose is Andres Iniesta because my great good fortune is to be arriving in this city just as his star was rising to watch him, to report on him, to get to know him, um, to earn some respect from him, and to watch him depart on a white horse into a brighter future. And that's been blooming fantastic.
0: The final envelope has on the front the words Best original song. It must be in the wrong podcast. I can't see how this would apply to football.
1: Uh, It is um, Spurs are on their way to Wembley because um, when I used to play in the Cults Academy uh, bike shed three and in championships in approximately 1978 and 79, one of the names we would shout out when we scored a goal with the tennis ball would be although we sometimes pronounced it Ardials at the time. And again, it's been to my great good fortune that I uh, not only worked with Ozzy Ardials and became friends with him, found that he could outswear me, which is a very rare experience, worked with his son, hugely talented son, Federico Ardials, and therefore that already seemed quite a strange loop of the universe that you want to you aspire to be a brilliant midfielder like Ozzy is in nineteen seventy eight, seventy-nine, nineteen eighty, <laughs> and you're in cults and he's moved from Argentina to London and you end up chums and working together and working with one of his family members. But then in mid December to be invited on stage in Barcelona in front of a wildly enthusiastic Spurs audience by Mickey Hazard and Steve Archibald, in order to sing the Aussie dar- Ardila's part of the Chaz and Dave Spurs song. Spurs are on their way to Wembley, where Mickey, who's got a great voice, is leading. Steve is miming because he's forgotten the words, just like he mimed on top of the Pops. And I'm on stage, just to sing the part in the That has to make Spurs are on their way to Wembley in the year of Chaz Hodges' death. One of the Soundtracks of the year Or Is it best adapted soundtrack But the one that That wins it In a World Cup year Would need to be The one that Everybody smiles When they hear it The one that um, Eulogises And idolises The pumping heartbeat Of the French team That won the World Cup And also the song Which unites World Cup glory With one of my favourite Funniest Peter Ustinov And Robert Morley films Top Cappy Because The writer of Oh Champs is Joe Dassan, son of film director Jules Dassan. And Oh Champs Elysees is a fantastic song which I've got on a 50, 50 songs of the 40s, 50s, and 60s um, CD of uh, French Chanson. And um, it was adapted, I suppose, by the squad. It seemed to be Paul Pogba behind it. And you, um, every everybody knows that it starts with "ngolocante paraparaba." Il est petit, il est gentil, il a stoppé Leo Messi, mais on sait tous tricheur cante, And of course, <laughs> what it says is, everybody's translated as saying like he's small, he's a nice guy, he swallowed up Leo Messi, he stopped him from playing. But we all know that he's a cheat. Whereas in fact, it's tricher kind of means card sharp. In the, um, in the training camps that surround a tournament win for seven, eight, nine weeks, you always get cards. You always get somebody who's alleged to be a card sharp. And depending on whether you're a fan of the Sting or not, that can be a compliment. So N'Golo Comte, the way that you and I want to think about it, Neil, comes out of that song in every way well, because he's finally called a card sharp, not a cheat. But he's wee, he's lovely. He bottled up there in Messi and he won the World Cup. And N'Golo Kante and his song um, sung repeatedly uh, by the French team, the French fans, with this little shy man, the Arsenal, even on a recommendation from one of Wenger's best friends and even having sent um, Gilles Gramande to to study him and spy on him, I'm informed and I have been informed for a long time that even before... Um, Leicester won the title The file <laughs> Which had the stamp Not good enough for Arsenal On it Was hung up In um, In the coach's room At at London Colony Big mistake by them He's gone on subsequently To make Leicester quite good Champion with Chelsea And uh, champion of the world With France And therefore He bloody well should have a song Shouldn't you Neil?
0: Thank you very much Graham Hunter For those Excellent picks From first to last In our Oscars for 2018 And thank you to all of you who've listened to all of our podcasts this year. Please stick around, there's much more to come.
1: Thanks, everybody. Thank you for joining us for season 2018-19. We've got huge creative plans for the months ahead, but we do need your help to make them happen. Please go right now to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and become a socio, become a paying member get an extra big interview every month, plus loads of bonus content. Last season, socios listened to nine exclusive big interviews, including Rafa van der Vaart, Troy Deeney, Roberto Di Matteo, and loads of me talking about football. The Premier League, the Champions League, Spanish football. I'm sure they enjoyed it and you will too. Support us, join us. Thank you.